0: Against a crown on its feet. Aaron for the, ring. To the Sneaker History podcast. What up, what up? Welcome back to the Sneaker History Podcast. Hey, before we get into today's episode, I want to tell you about a couple of our partners. These are some of the folks that help us keep the podcast going, and they have some exclusive discounts just for our listeners. If you're a subscriber of our YouTube channel, you already know how I love to display my kicks when I'm not rocking them. My friends at Sneaker Throne make sneaker display cases featuring customizable LED lights, drop side cases to showcase the entire side of your shoe, not just the heel or the toe, and they just released their new Hat Throne for those that collect fitteds or snapbacks like myself. To me, it's the perfect way to display your collection, whether it's kicks, hats, or both. You can save 10% on your Sneaker Throne order by using the code history at sneakerthrone.com. That's history at sneakerthrone.com. Now, if you're a Patreon supporter or a member of our Discord community, you already know about Kicks with V Hot Sauce and his small batch locally sourced hot sauce. V has been one of the biggest supporters of the Sneaker History podcast since the early days, and his hot sauce has been a huge hit with the community. V has two new flavors that just dropped, habanero coffee and chipotle ginger. My mouth is actually watering just talking about them. He's giving an exclusive discount to our podcast listeners. The first 50 people to use the code History 10 will save 10% on their order from KicksWithVHots.com. That's SneakerHistory10 at KicksWithVHots.com. If you're interested in sponsoring the podcast or becoming a partner with the community, get in touch with us. You can reach us by email at podcast at Or better yet, tell some of your favorite brands they should be sponsoring our podcast. All right, enough business. Let's get into today's episode. Hey, what's up, everybody? Welcome back to the Sneaker History Podcast. This is Nick Engvall here, and today I've got a special guest, somebody that's going to give a different perspective into the world of sneakers. I have Shoshi Cement with me, who has been somebody that I've followed and kind of admired her journey along the way in the other side of the business of footwear that we don't really necessarily talk about so much as sneakerheads, but I think that makes her the perfect guest to have on the show. So welcome to the show. How are you doing?
1: Hey, I'm great. Uh, Thank you so much for having me.
0: Of course. Of course. Um, I can't remember when I first kind of connected you with you online, but within the last few years, just kind of seeing your journey, uh, you know, and you covering the footwear industry, I always am curious about, the, you know, as somebody who's been lucky enough to work kind of on the creator side, but also on the business side in the footwear world, It's, it's been something that I've wanted to reach out to you for a while and talk to you about is just like that perspective that you have, which, you know, I think... You were with, was it Business Insider previously to Footwear News?
1: Yeah, started okay. out at Business Insider.
0: I th- and I think that's where I first saw a few pieces that you had written or some interviews that you had done. And I was like, oh, this is kind of cool. Like, you know, especially because the one thing I always find interesting about footwear is like there's a lot of old people that like do the numbers and analytics and the business side of the industry that seems so far removed from like the you know, not necessarily like the sneakerhead community, but just the, the age range that like drives so much of the business. So it's cool Mm -hmm. to see you kind of as a new piece of this whole big mix of things going on, but I guess give like a little bit of a background as to like how you got into it and how you got into, you know, reporting and journalism and that kind of thing as well.
1: Yeah, I mean, totally. And I love how you, how you spoke about kind of the old, the old folks in the footwear industry, um, I think, you know, when we talk about like independent footwear retailers, they're usually the legacy ones are a lot older and we affectionately refer to them as shoe dogs. Um, And they're definitely like a crucial part of this whole story, which is the footwear industry. And I think there's a place for all these different characters, which is one of my favorite parts about covering it. But um, I guess about me, I mean, I always loved writing. I always loved journalism. I knew that that's what I was going to go into. Um, I think I have a... Different array of interests, Um, so that kind of drew me to you know being able able to cover and digest different topics, Um, and then with footwear and and retail generally, that kind of just happened by chance. Um, I graduated college and started at Business Insider. At the time, it was called Business Insider. They switched to Insider now, but I started out as a fellow on the retail desk, kind of covering. Everything across retail, um, from fast food to big box like Costco, Walmart, um, and apparel—you know—as the stories rolled in, and over time, I just kind of realized um, through my coverage and seeing the readership um, and interacting with the community how um, how much of an interest there was in footwear-specific stories and you know athletic wear companies. Um, so I started covering it at Insider. I worked there for in total two years. And then in July, I switched over to footwear news um, where I continue to cover footwear, the business side.
0: Yeah. It's, it is interesting. Cause there's so, uh, you know, we were talking before, like there's such a big audience for footwear apparel, like kind of that, like that crossover of like, we're all sort of working from home now. And we all don't really dress the same way that we would if we were going out and it's like almost like elevated the like casual stuff even more which was already like a huge trend you know prior to the last few years um but it's it's just as as you have come into it you know did you did you have interest in that aspect at all prior or did really just the stories that you were covering kind of drive you towards it
1: yeah i mean I think just as a general like, interest of mine in journalism is I love covering topics that people are very passionate about. Um, so like, for example, I myself am not really interested in sports. I don't follow sports. But my thesis um, when I graduated college was about sports and sports journalism and about sports fans. And I worked on a podcast about, you know, the Alabama sports fan fanatics and, and what kind of that culture looks like. Um, so I've always loved that, which kind of was what drew me to sneaker culture. I'm not a sneakerhead. Um, I should really like disclose that on my Twitter, even though all of my <laughs> Twitter posts make me look like one. But I'm really not. I say that all the time to people that I'm interviewing. Um, but this idea of, you know, people lining up outside of stores for hours, um, the resale market and how incredibly profitable it can be um, and the passion behind it in a lot of ways was what drew me to it and actually the first pivotal moment i think that i can look back to and what led me to really start covering it was my friend actually had told me about this if i don't know if you remember this adidas uh arizona iced tea pop-up they were selling it was in soho i think and they were selling these arizona iced tea adidas sneakers for 99 cents and i mean i had heard about it i wasn't even thinking about it from a coverage perspective i just my friend had told me about it i live near there And, um, she, she texted me, I was in the office that day and she texted me like, you got to get down here. Like things are getting crazy. Um, so I told my editor, like what was apparently stuff was going on. It was retail related. Okay. I was a fellow at the time and I, I went down to the pop-up shop and it had kind of turned into mayhem. There were hundreds, maybe, maybe a thousand people there, um, waiting in line. There was a fight that broke out. People started like attacking each other. The police were called. And then it got shut down, and I happened to be there, and I was like the only reporter on the scene because I had happened to know about it, and I ended up, like, kind of filing all these interviews to my coworker who's in the office. We kind of tag teamed it, and then wrote this crazy story that that really was like, went pretty viral and was cited across the industry, across news, Um, and it was it was really eye opening for me because I had never seen anything like that. I didn't think that that's how the day would turn out, but um, that kind of, you know, opened my eyes to what, what there is in terms of sneaker culture, how it can sometimes be dangerous, but how there's, you know, a wide audience for it.
0: Yeah, most definitely. I think that that's kind of one of those things that, you know, I, as I mentioned before we started recording, like, I, I think that the, the perspective that you can have kind of slightly removed from it and not caught up in the, the need to buy or need to sell or need to like be a part of it. But like watch, you know, like it's it's fascinating to to your point. Like it's kind of what got me into content creating and journalism and like writing and, and just sharing like the perspective of like like kind of being not an outsider, but just like an observer of situations. Mm-hmm. And I think with, with sneakers, people get so caught up. I mean, that example, right? Like, you know, there's like nothing worth all of that drama that goes on in those situations. Like just no product Mm -hmm. is worth that. I don't care if you think that it's worth a dollar amount or something. It just doesn't make sense, you know, like, and yet it continues to happen in sneakers. And obviously in all sorts of other places with retail over the last couple of years too, with like, you know, the reselling stuff and the PS fives and all these different things Mm were like, you know, it just, it's nice to hear someone that's actually observing without being a part of it too, because I think that that makes your message and your stories that much more important. Right. Because a lot of times, you know, you could take the 50 people that are on Twitter right now and like they're also worried about getting that pair that comes out on, you know, whether mm-hmm. it's a, a retail release or a sneakers app thing. And they forget like to think about like the bigger picture and like how this is all playing out and like the rest of your life and in other ways. Right.
1: Yeah. And I think to your point, that was kind of one of the things I think that my editors liked about me covering the beat. Like I had introduced it. So I was natural that I was going to be the one writing about it at Insider. But I think, you know, there was a sort of, we're not, Insider is not a traditional like sneakerhead outlet. We're not like a complex or even an input or anything like that. Um, So our audience, therefore, is very different. And the way that we were writing these stories was purposely catered to explain things to people who really don't know much about the culture, who want to learn kind of like an explainer type of style. Um, Even everything from like explaining what what bots mean, or like certain words, kicks, we wouldn't just kind of take that for granted in our writing, we would explain everything, um, knowing our audience. So I think that was, that was something that was definitely important. I think, I mean, like I mentioned to you before, there is a bit of, I think, gatekeeping in the coverage culture of sneakers, people feel like, you know, there there is a community of people who grew up with this culture, and they cover it from that perspective, they have a different understanding that I don't. Um, but there is something to be said about learning it um, and explaining it as you learn it and, and, and offering that different perspective for some people.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think too, like, you know, you can come into it without the bias that so many people have about one thing or another, right? Like you kind of constantly see the chatter on social media amongst the sneaker heads out there, sneaker community, however you want to refer to them. And it's, you know it's like overwhelmingly negative and that's something that we like with the sneaker history community and like the discord that we have and like the the conversations that we have really just try to like avoid that negativity right because you know it doesn't really i personally don't believe that you have to have a certain number of shoes or you know a certain value of shoe or a, you know whatever crazy experience to say that you're like a part of this community it's more just like if you're passionate and you want to share some of those conversations with people about that passion Mm -hmm. and most of the time it's really just a conduit. Like, you know, to, to your point about covering retail, right? Like the people will line up for iPhones and line up for all these different things throughout the years. And especially in New York with Supreme and Kith and all these places that have like popped up and it's really just like a community of people standing out there like in the cold can, you know, like having conversations while they wait in line. Right. Mm -hmm. And to me, like, being able to, like, step into something like that that is, you know, like, to your point, like, it, absolutely, you know, gatekeepers everywhere in all of these things, right? Sneakers in, ev- in all sorts of nuances of sneakers, too, right? It's like you have to know certain things. You have to reference certain things, spell things a certain ways. Mm-hmm. You know, you put Air Jordan in front of Jordan and, you know, like, all these things that, like at the end of the day, don't really matter that much to the bigger picture. There's just a small few people that are like really kind of holding on to something that, that has evolved, you know, a a long ways from the way it was in a lot of Mm -hmm. ways. But also I think like there's, there's some, you know, to give credit to some of those people, there's a lot of people that do a good job of kind of documenting those elements of like what happened here and what happened there that Mm -hmm. hopefully people will learn from. But like, to your point about seeing you know fights break out and stuff like clearly i don't know if some people really want to learn from any of the, the past so um but i do think that like that perspective and and um you having you know kind of just getting to learn that as you go is like really valuable in the way that you're able to communicate and i think like to to you know the the previous generations of even you know like retail business owners like they get they could learn a lot from having, you know, conversations with people like yourself that get to bring a fresh perspective where it's not it's almost like not encouraged to be new to sneakers in the community of sneakers. That makes Right.
1: Sense. Yeah. And I, I feel like I have seen a shift in even in the last few years. I mean, I'm thinking like. At Insider, they've been covering it, which is a huge outlet. Um, obviously, you know, we had that piece in Bloomberg that kind of exploded, um, I think a year ago, but, um, j- it, content aside, you're seeing these like huge publications writing about something that was considered so niche so long ago. And I think like, to your point, people are maybe the old school sneaker journalists are holding on to, you know, we get the culture, we get to write about it, but, but that's obviously shifting. It's, it's an asset class now as everyone likes to talk about. So, um, everyone if you're a style reporter, if you're a retail reporter, you have to be writing about this. So it's it's interesting to see the shift.
0: Yeah. And, you know, that shift is also, like, just super apparent to me in the number of, like, consignment slash resale stores that are in New York City now, right? Like, traditional retail almost doesn't exist. I mean, it obviously doesn't exist the same way that it did, but, like, it's probably you know, I don't know what percentage-wise, you could probably speak to this better than I can, but, like, to me, it seems like there are exponentially more resale or consignment stores, secondary market stores, than there are, you know, traditional, like, I don't know, Paragon Sports or whatever those, like, Mom and Pops mm-hmm. or, you know, David Z years ago. Um, do you think that, like, as, as somebody who's kind of newer to the whole world of it, do you think that... Do you think that, like, the... The people that are embracing that new kind of secondary market, like almost like a gray area of what retail is, I guess. And it's like whatever you can sell, you sell kind of mentality. Mm -hmm. Do you think there's room for the older generation to actually evolve to that? Or is it just like, you know, I feel like it's almost like, you know, the new kids are here you're in your, you know, young twenties, and you're flipping shoes, and you start your store, and now, like the quote, mom and pop, you know, like to your point, the shoe dogs that have been around for mm-hmm. you know decades, almost like don't even like. I don't know if it's in, in, intentional or if they're just stubborn or if there's even room for them to exist yeah. in this new place.
1: Um, what I'm seeing is that I think it's kind of like, you got to get on board or you're not, it's not going to be a good experience for you. And it's interesting because I was actually in London a few months ago. Um, and I went to Harrods because they had, you know, the traditional massive department store, um, in the center and they have this floor with sneaker consignment and like you, it's, it's resale essentially in Harrods. It's called the edit London. Um, and they just opened it up and, I went there to interview the, the guy who owns the edit and also people at Harrods. And like, for me, that was a perfect example of like legacy old school retail, which is Harrods, embracing this new wave of, of retail, which is, you know, sneaker resale, essentially. Um, and it's so interesting to me because, you know, I was talking to them and the way they're sourcing the shoes is like, A little we don't i don't really know where they're getting them like he has his connections and they end up in the store and people buy them and they they have a price on them but um it just kind of showed me that seems like a good way to go about it like embracing it you can marry the old school with the new school um but there's you know there's always a place for traditional retail um i think what i'm seeing maybe less from a like a sneaker perspective though that's becoming more of a thing um, just like traditional regular retailers embracing resale of their own products um, through through third party programs, like you're seeing that with Trove, which powers resale for a lot of different companies, ThreadUp, um, they're they're doing it for a bunch of different brands. So, old school brands, even like a Walmart, um, they're catching on to this. Um, you know, it might it's not necessarily like the luxury sneaker side of resale, but they're understanding the value. Um, And from a sustainability perspective, um, so that's definitely something that they're watching and not ignoring, which is good.
0: Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up because I worked for StockX, you know, like really early on. And one of like one of the most common, you know, pushbacks that we got in like 2016, when it kind of first started becoming a public thing was that if we worked with a Nike or an Adidas or Reebok or any number of brands or retailers that we were just hiking up the prices to, to make more money off of it. And Mm -hmm. I, I always just didn't understand. I mean, I can kind of understand that perspective is like, you think that we can just hike the price up, but the demand is, is what is hiking Mm -hmm. the price up. It's not like we're saying to sell this, like, like we're putting like Mm -hmm. the way that it was set up, we're, putting it out to market and the the market decides what it does, right? Like that's kind of the, I guess like the blessing and the curse of what a stock X kind of does for, for the whole industry. Um, but it's, it's really fascinating because, you know, things have just evolved so much in like, even just in the last five years in that regard, because, you know, now you're seeing even, you know, like your example of Herods and, you know, just like, I think recently Nike released like limited, uh, Air Jordans on StockX or in partnership with, with StockX, mm-hmm. some Oregon Ducks shoes or something. And, you know, I think like this is just the natural evolution of these partnerships, right? Like You're just going to find ways to partner with these companies that have been able to build a lot of energy around product releases, whether that's secondary market or, or a boutique. It's It's the same kind of collaborative nature that a big business like Nike says, hey, how do we get a little bit more excitement using a partner to do this? But um, I guess like, yeah. let's, let's kind of circle back. Cause I want to, I want to talk to you like specifically about like, you know, over the last year or two, like what have been some of the, like, I guess, biggest stories for you as someone who is not necessarily like looking at like the big story being like, I need to buy this shoe the way a lot of sneaker consumers are.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I love talking about the business side of footwear. It's funny because in my like regular circles outside of work, don't really have any friends who know anything about footwear so it's always fun for me to talk um this stuff so that's exciting um in terms of stories that have been big i mean obviously the the ipo and acquisition market is is always an interesting topic and we could get more into you know specifics like reebok which i think was the biggest shoe deal of 2021 um i think another trend that i've been watching and it was you know partly throughout 2020 and then really through 2021 is just this general business move to shift um, brands shifting their focus to direct to consumer channels as opposed to um, with different wholesale channels. And this is from my perspective as at Footwear News, where we cover like all aspects of this. It's a super interesting story. There's a lot of interest in it um, because of the effects that it has for, you know, bolstering a brand's digital and, and store business and also kind of the negative effects of what that does for, you know, um, a retailer that might rely on Nike for sales. So we've seen this, you know, with Nike is probably the most notable example, um, pulling out of a bunch of different partnerships, DSW, Zappos, um, you know, a bunch. We've seen it with Crocs, Under Armour, Adidas, kind of all the big players doing that. Um, and that, that's that been a really interesting area to cover and, and kind of see the ripple effects um, throughout the industry.
0: Do you think that, that there are... Aside from the obvious, you know, kind of, let's say casualties that come from big brands pulling that kind of, you know, if, if, a, if a company depends on, you know, Nike, for instance, for let's say 70 or 80% of their sales. And obviously if Nike pulls out, then that essentially shuts down that business. And it's not, you know, I, I want to have empathy for those people that have that business, but I also can understand the business decision of like, this might not make sense also would encourage those people and anybody that has a retail store now to diversify what you're, what you're selling and not depend on one brand. You know, if, if one Mm -hmm. partnership can pull the rug out from under you and, and end your business, then that's going to be challenging no matter who it is. Cause eventually it will happen, right? Like nothing lasts forever.
1: Yeah. No, that's a great point.
0: Do you think that, that there are other downsides to that in like, you know, the bigger picture of the footwear industry?
1: I think, um, I think it's a great point that what, what appears to be detrimental for certain brands, which is this phenomenon of pulling these big brands, pulling out of, of the retailers. Um, it does allow for room for growth amongst some of these retailers. Um, like it's never good to rely on one brand and in the In the same way, and we're learning in the supply chain crisis. Don't rely on one region. Don't rely on one brand in case of a shutdown. So um, I think that these retailers, let's say like a DSW, they're leaning into other opportunities. Um, Brand retailer-owned brands is a big opportunity. Um, So I think there is room, Um, and it's again, it is a business. At the end of the day, it's a business choice from these brands. They're they're seeing what's working for them. They want to control the way that their brand is presented, which is a big reason that they're pulling out of certain channels. So um, I think everyone agrees that it makes sense for them. And and I think there's still a lot more to go. I mean, I think in 2021, we we heard a lot of announcements of, of these channels kind of ending. I think in the next year or two, we'll see the actual effects and what that looks like. But um, I don't think it'll, other than, you know, some stories that I've heard about, like small, independent, family-owned stores. They, I've read stories um, of them having a lot of issues from that. Um, but other than that, I don't think it's going to be a death knell.
0: Yeah. You kind of mentioned something that will lead us into, like, the next part of this conversation. But, like, I think that, you know, the, the way that brands present themselves is always, like, an interesting thing for me because I've worked on both sides of of the brand coin of like being somebody who was partnering with those brands to to present stories and tell stories and introduce product and sell products, you know, through like working at retailers, but also like on the brand side in work that I've done where, you know, like you're kind of you know, you're kind of trying to present it and in, in you're you're always conscious, I guess, of how everything is perceived. So One of the things we kind of touched on prior to our conversation today is the way that brands are navigating, I guess, like the last couple of years of this kind of, I don't even want to call it an uproar because to me, like it seems like it's just a constant conversation that needs to be had because inevitably brands just hire people that look like me and they shouldn't, right? Like they need to hire, like you have to be surrounded with diverse group of people in order to even be relevant in my opinion. Because if I saw a picture of a bunch of dudes that look like me as like board members or whatever, like, I just wouldn't want to be a part of it. Right. It doesn't, it doesn't make sense. And and I know that like, that might be like a tough thing for, for people to swallow. But like, to me, that presentation aspect of like what brands are doing to kind of, I don't, I don't want to be negative towards it because I know that like the change has to come regardless. But a lot of times the perception as a consumer is that things are just done to appease you know the kind of like the bubble up of the moment that they need to like put out a press release or or yep. move somebody around. so in your in your experience like kind of covering this because you've covered the executive level changes and the business changes that happen, do you think that the brands have been you know addressing these kind of needs to diversify and get more? Get more clear about, you know, who is really a part of their company as to like what they present in the, you know, the planned out pictures, I guess.
1: Right. I mean, this has been like one of the biggest topics um, in a lot of my coverage. Um, It's really tough and important one. And I commend a lot of my colleagues um, who've covered it really, really well. Sheena um, Butler Young. She um, did a lot of that before I came to Footwear News. Matt. Um, She's not there anymore. But Peter, also one of my colleagues, also has done a lot and is working on a lot of that stuff. Um, I would say it's really hard to get away with lip service these days from the brands. So, like, we see diverse representation in advertisements. We see it in the endorsement deals. That much is clear. That's really not cutting it for anyone these days, which is what I'm gathering from from talking to these people and just covering all the initiatives going on. Um, People are really holding these companies accountable um, and that's their consumers. And that's people who work at these companies. It's, it's on every level. So I think, you know, you have the, the, if you have the representation in all this advertising, a common concern that I, that I hear from people in the brands is we're representing them so much on the front, but on the inside, it's just, really not the same. So, um, you know, you see in the last like year or so, all these milestone reports and and goals, um, companies trying to increase with hiring, with retention and with promotion, um, when it comes to people within the company, these are all really important. There, there are ways to do this better than others. Um, and there, there are really great experts, um, who know a lot about this topic. And, you know, there are a lot of great organizations helping, um, helping deal with this issue. Um, I've spoken extensively to Dwayne uh, Edwards at Pencil, um, who's doing amazing work and um, really understands this issue better than anyone else in terms of hiring and, and getting the right talent in the door. Um, so I think that's ubiquitous. Everyone is kind of addressing that. That's that's a big, a big issue. Um, I think it's getting better, but obviously there's always there's work to be done and these brands will be the first ones to admit it. You can look in their, in their SEC filings and they're admitting it themselves. So, yeah. um, but I don't know. I, I think there's definitely more, a long way to go, but there has been improvements, at least quantitatively.
0: Yeah, I, it, it is, it, it's good too that, like to have, you know, like yourself and you mentioned Peter, who I want to get on the podcast too. Like we text pretty regularly, but I just, we just haven't, I don't know why kind of thing. But we, uh, you know, we see all this stuff so much now thanks to, like, coverage of what you guys collectively do, right? Like, you don't have the... I kind of just call it the sneakerhead blinders, right? You don't have those on going into this where you're not swayed by, you know, the fancy, shiny object that is the new release kind of thing. But it's interesting, and I want to ask, I guess, or preface my question first by saying, like, I was really lucky and got to be a part of some stuff in the film industry over the last few years and was a part of a couple of events and organizations that, that basically try to address these same challenges of, of, you know, representation in the film industry, which is, you know, I guess, historically, probably even worse than sneakers. Because it's so like tough for people to get into and, and really be supported within the, the industry itself. But it was really kind of eye-opening to for me to be a part of those conversations in that world in and see that there are people that are really like a lot of people really trying to push these, you know, kind of just open minds, right? Like open eyes and like let people see what's going on as opposed to like what you see, you know, at face value or, you know, mm-hmm. to, to your point, like the lip service mm-hmm. kind of connotation. But I guess like maybe even a little bit outside of footwear if necessary, but like, do you see that same kind of conversation happening in other aspects of the, of the stories that you cover you know outside of outside of sneakers cuz like i think with sneakers or with you know let's say apparel sport sporting apparel whatever a company like nike is almost like they're almost like you know presenting they're they're presenting that they're an ally in all of these things all along the way because it's like i don't want to discredit the fact that they try to be but like they're also a huge part of the problem in a lot of ways and at least from my perspective it doesn't seem like the conversation happens in a lot of the other places around the footwear world or connected retailers and stuff. How do you feel about that? I
1: think that's a great point. And the way that I thought of it when I was first covering it was um, there. I don't think it's just because we're so involved in sneakers that it feels like it's really come down onto the sneaker companies and it's really, you're seeing a lot of changes happen from them and a lot of statements and stuff. I think it's because sneakers are so intrinsically linked to this culture in in every aspect and, and anyone will tell you that. Um, so it becomes even more so important. Um, you know, whereas, you know, another company or let's say a tech company or whatever, doesn't necessarily have that historical factor there. Um, not that it's not important, it's equally important, but it just makes the call a little bit different, I think. And it changes the perspective. I still think though, like across the board, just anecdotally from reading the news and and talking to friends, I think it's important everywhere. Everyone's everyone's aware and taking note of it. Um, But I do maybe I mean, I don't think it's just because I'm covering it. But I do feel a lot of the pressure on the speaker companies there. And they're they're very motivated, at least externally, it sounds to to change things. So um, but that that's an interesting question.
0: Yeah, I mean hopefully hopefully they are, you know are continuing to to make those changes and you know make the entire you know industry a you know a, a better experience for everyone because I I do think like there's there's a lot of I mean we could get into other nuances about it right but like you know with sneakers not only is it coming directly from a culture in almost every way there's also just like the the you know, the, the shrink it and pink it problems that exist where it's like, Mm -hmm. like we've been talking, I've been talking about this for 15 years in a public sense. Like, Mm -hmm. how is this still like an issue kind of?
1: Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And I think like the companies that are putting out real substantial, initiatives, um, that have tangible impacts are the ones that people seem to be responding to the best. Um, you know, so like, obviously monetary donations are great and you're seeing that across the board, but like, I'm thinking of like, um, you know, I think it was the athletes, foot um, launched this, this program to encourage black owners of, um, these retail stores, like a, a new, um, franchise program for them to like launch and develop their own, I think it's called the Start Program, um, which you might've heard of. That That's like a really, for me, just an example, like a really tangible example of like, we see an issue, there's not a lot of black ownership of sneaker stores, here's how we're gonna solve it, this is the program, and now we're launching. And it's like, that that's very refreshing for a lot of people. Also, um, a lot of companies are posting like updates to their initial um, announcements. I know Foot Locker did that pretty recently um, yeah. Which is also great. It's them holding themselves accountable instead of making other people hold them accountable. So um, those are good examples, I think, of, of the right way to go about it.
0: Yeah, those are those are definitely great. And I think, I think those are the things too that I, I guess, like just as somebody who kind of is in this like space of like both the business side of footwear and like the sneakerhead side of footwear. I wish that those kind of stories, because, you know, 90% of the time they come from you or people that you work with. I wish those got as much traction across the, the sneakerhead, you know, blogs and Instagram accounts. So you got to see more of that, right? Like, mm-hmm. I think, like, the those accounts specifically, and not picking on them because obviously everybody's kind of, you know, you're you're kind of just like the... Whatever the algorithm says is what, you know, your social media team ends up putting out in a lot of mm-hmm. ways. Um, but I think those accounts oftentimes report about the like, for lack of a better term, report about the fire that when it starts, but never talk about the efforts to put the fire out or, or make mm-hmm. that experience better for people. So. Right. Um, I'm, I'm glad to hear that that you are seeing those things and those those two examples are you know definitely things that I've seen that are, are good too um, mm-hmm. I guess to shift a little bit you know I'm I've been a big fan of Reebok for a really long time so I'm kind of I'm kind of sensitive about this next subject so um, you know the acquisition you know, Authentic Brands acquiring Reebok from Adidas this last year, you kind of mentioned is one of the bigger stories. For me personally, it's been really, it's really been kind of just disheartening to see a brand that had such a history behind it and so many kind of just kind of cool marketing along the way, whether you like the the shoes or not, like they had so many moments throughout the years that made it such a a, a powerful and like, just well-known brand and then over the last, you know, 3-4 years as it came out that Adidas was like trying to get rid of Reebok or didn't know what to do with the company and couldn't find like that, you know, right place or that right kind of energy for them to keep it going and profitable. I feel like it's been like a really like long drawn out process to get to the point of okay, cool, like Reebok is finally acquired by somebody else. But That's just me being like kind of the, I'm wearing my sneakerhead hat in this (laughs) part of the conversation, because I'm sure that you have, as somebody who's watched these things on a much closer level than I have, you know, how do you feel about one, like such a, such a, you know, I would probably assume that Reebok is, you know, top 10 footwear brands in terms of like size and, and, you know, relevancy. How do you feel about that acquisition and where do you see it going? And like, just like, just, I guess, like a little bit of an overview of like just covering that over the last couple of years. Cause I'm sure that you've talked about it a dozen times, at least, you know?
1: Yeah. I mean, it's funny because, um, you know, I covered Reebok a little bit at insider and I actually, I read, um, the founder of Reebok's book about founding Reebok. It was founded in London, I think. And it, it was a British brand originally. And he, Um, founded it. It was like his family company and then brought it to America. And the book detailed the whole story of, of how it's a very interesting, like if you're, if you're into that type of history, really cool read. Um, And I interviewed that founder and he, he's really great and has very active Instagram personality. So he's, he's fun, but that was kind of my first experience um, covering Reebok. We talked um, in our interview a little bit about how it's changed, how how the hip hop industry kind of made Reebok um, more popular and and aerobics generally like that boom in the eighties made Reebok more popular. Um, um, And that's in his book. But I mean, I would say how you feel and how you just described how you feel kind of sad about what happened to Reebok in Adidas. And that's exactly what Shaq says. If you ever speak to him about Reebok and he says it publicly. Um, So that's a feeling I think that a lot of people felt Reebok was this independent brand. And then I think the consensus is kind of what you described, that they kind of, they lost some of that unique stuff and that they became less interesting, essentially, under Adidas. They kind of got morphed into their collection of brands and kind of fell to the wayside. Um, Which is why I think this acquisition is so interesting. And, And for the record, Reebok, you know, everyone likes to talk about Authentic Brands Group taking up struggling brands. Reebok w- was not really struggling when it was acquired or announced to be acquired. Their sales were up, I think, 76% um, in the first half of 2021, which is way ahead of the rest of the industry. So they were doing well, which makes the acquisition really a different one for Authentic Brands Group. They're usually, you know, they picked up Forever 21, they picked up... Um, you know, these Barneys, like brands that were really struggling. Um, so it, it's different in that sense, but it's the same, um, in, in another sense, which is that, and, and this is something that the Reebok CEO said to me, Jamie Salter, um, Reebok, uh, ABG likes to pick up brands that have heartbeats that have like a strong love and like kind of how you described your affinity towards Reebok. A lot of people have that they picked up on that and they saw potential and that's why they pick up these brands. And I think, you know, there's so much potential for Reebok under ABG, which is why I'm I'm really excited about the story. And I think everyone is. Um, They have huge goals. They want to make it a $10 billion brand, I think, in the next five years. Um, And they really, you know, they believe they can do it. And the way they're going to do it is by kind of giving the staff that had been under Adidas for so long free reign to kind of do whatever they want. With, with their ideas their designs their products um, bringing shaq back in to to retro some of his sneakers and to take some direction there and that's really exciting for people as like Jamie Salter said the CEO of abG he said he use the words it's gonna be bonanza at at reebok so all the reebok lovers from years past who are kind of nostalgic for that it will be you know exciting and I think I, I'm I think it's a really exciting brand to watch. I think analysts seem pretty confident in the brand's ability to to hit those goals that ABG set out. Um, And I think the deal is expected to close pretty soon, actually, um, in Q1. So it's it's definitely interesting. I could speak about this deal all day.
0: Yeah. Well, I'm 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 interested to hear a little bit more, I guess, about the Shack piece to that, right? because, as you talked about before we started recording, his presence in footwear is obviously you know somewhat massive right like he's he's had a huge presence off and on throughout the years and different maybe not necessarily specifically with his Reebok stuff and the sneakerhead community, but his brands outside of that partnership with Reebok have been a massive part of the footwear industry for mm-hmm. many, many years. But I also think it's really cool to hear you say how passionate he is about it, because that's, I think, the the general consensus of like the people that are nostalgic about Reebok are worried that it's going to become something less because of ABG. Mm -hmm. But, you know, to to consider that they already have that partnership with Shaq in place And what that could potentially look like if he's more involved, you know, he seems like in my, you know, couple of times getting to interview him and you could probably speak to this as well. But like he seems like one of those people that when he gets genuinely excited about a new thing, he likes to be really involved in it. And Mm -hmm. maybe that's not like I'm the creative director and like I'm in front of the business the way some people do. But like he's super passionate about a lot of these things. So, yeah, do you think that like, you know, do you see that being like a, a a big piece of of you know the future for for Reebok once this deal does close
1: I mean for sure definitely and I I will just say the way you described you know Shaq getting excited and being involved I don't know in every area of his life but I will just say when it comes to Authentic Brands Group um he's a shareholder in the company he's like one of the largest shareholders in the company because initially his involvement with the company was that he had kind of signed his name rights to the company for them to do kind of what they do with Elvis Presley brand and kind of make that go on. Um, And when he signed the deal, he decided to invest basically all the money that he was getting from the deal back into the company. So he he's involved with a lot of stuff that goes on with ABG. It's not just Reebok. It's not just the Shaq brand. Um, And the whole way that Reebok even came about as a deal was because Shaq was driving it and he was behind it. Um and and Jamie um, and the CMO and President Nick Woodhouse have said this directly, and they've said it publicly. Like Shaq saw that Reebok was was struggling. they They saw it was up for sale and and he pushed the company to go out and get it. Um, and you know, obviously, Jamie and Nick have have business acumen and they understand the potential for brands, but it all kind of came together in this nice little scenario. Um, but, you know, the story they tell is Shaq would call up every day did you get Reebok? No. Did you get it yet? No. and you know, there's a whole, they put in an offer. It wasn't enough. They put in a new offer and eventually they got it. But to this day, they really credit Shaq for, for pushing that deal through. So it's no doubt. Will he have involvement in what goes on with Reebok? Um, he understands the brand really well, which is really reassuring. Um, and then in terms of like just running under ABG, I did mention this to Jamie when I was when I was talking to him about this and I asked him, like, aren't you nervous that if ABG takes on this brand, is there a possibility that it can just kind of be diluted? You know, you're a you're a retail powerhouse. You have so many different brands. Is it just going to be like one of another brand? Like, is it going to be an Adidas situation? And the way he described his company kind of set those fears aside for anyone who might have them, which is they, they're they very specific at ABG about who they Um, put in charge of different brands. So they're hiring the right people for the right brands. They have a very um, organized and specific approach to hiring and staffing that kind of brings out the best in each person and brings out the best in each brand, which I think is really interesting and important and like might be the most important thing to make a brand like Reebok succeed. You need those people who understand the brand like Shaq. so I think, I think it's only good things. And, but yeah, Shaq will definitely be involved.
0: Yeah. That's, that's really kind of awesome to hear. Cause I think that that's hopefully that helps alleviate some of the fears of some of the people that are probably going to be listening to this that are like more like diehard collector and sneaker and like, you know, really like nostalgic about the brand more so than like, you know, the, the kind of more modern, uh, evolution of what it has become and like the, you know, some of the like collaborations and some of the partnerships that have been announced where it just feels like there's a disconnect between like the legacy product and the the future of the brand. And I think that, you know, if you personally like talking to people at Reebok, there's been a lot of confusion about like where the brand goes under the Adidas banner anyway. You've got like collaborative shoes from Adidas and Reebok, which you know, you can make a cool story, I guess, but it doesn't make any sense to me because these brands are going to part ways at some point, And you've known that almost the whole time, you know, like, mm-hmm. um, but then also you kind of have this, uh, you know, like, depending on how far back you go, like you have this, like, are we going to make performance shoes for basketball? And like, that's a huge part of sneaker culture, but it's not as important as it used to be. So like, there's just a lot of like indecisiveness, it seems like from a, from, you know, an outsider perspective, mm-hmm. but I guess last question on the whole Reebok topic, because I think we both could talk for a long time about it. Mm -hmm. What were, let's say, some of your uh, funnest rumors about the whole acquisition? You know, there were so many, like... Yeah. (laughs) There's just so many things that (laughs) happened throughout the last few years of, like, oh, Master P and Baron Davis are going to buy the brand. And, you know, like...
1: Yeah. Honestly, I don't even... All I do remember is, like, we... We have our guys at Reebok that we talked to, and I just remember that the PR people, I just remember them being like, maybe two weeks before it dropped, they were like, we have no idea and we won't know until it drops. So there was, it was really, it was really quite amazing that it didn't get leaked because it did drop with a press release and we wrote it up that way. Um, but I think they did that on purpose. Um, I don't even remember the, the rumors. What, what were they? I, I don't. I don't really remember hearing so much about um, ABG, but I guess that makes sense.
0: Yeah. It, well, and I think that's the most fascinating part of it to me is that, like, it they weren't necessarily a part of the conversation anywhere publicly f- that I can recall. And to your point, like, it was almost like a surprise that oh, people are still talking about Reebok being acquired by somebody all of a sudden because they mm-hmm. announced it and. It was just, I, I don't know, it's just, like, fascinating to me how, like, up and down the story was. Because there was times where it was, like, you know, there was all this money saying that Adidas is losing. And, like, to your point, right, I've felt like they've been doing well as a business, just as a as a consumer. Like, they've been doing well in a lot of ways that didn't seem to be giving the team at Reebok credit for it. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's just, it's just fascinating to me. Um, I guess, yeah. like you know kind of kind of i guess going away from that like what do you see as like the you know the the bigger stories for the coming year as as we get into 2022
1: yeah i mean reebok is definitely up there and even today they just announced a licensing agreement in china and they're kind of doing one of those every few weeks so it's interesting my editor and i were talking about how interesting it is to see so many plans for a brand that the deal didn't even close yet Seems like a rarity in the industry, but um, I guess it's empowering and exciting. Um, So that's that's definitely a big one that we're watching. We kind of talked about this very briefly before, but everything going on with the metaverse and the virtual the virtual world of sneakers is really new for a lot of people. Um, NFTs, um, I think it's a really divisive topic. You have a lot of old school analysts who are not into it and you could see that on Twitter. It's very funny. Um, but then you have people who are totally bought into it and, you know, Nike is, is making patents for, for virtual sneakers. Now, this is clearly a real thing that people are getting on board for. Um, so, you know, like, I feel like every other day I'm writing another story. This brand enters the metaverse, this brand enters the metaverse NFTs. So that's definitely going to be a big topic. And I mean, I don't know if it's going to last for years or if it's really the future but it's definitely a topic right now
0: yeah i could not agree more it's it's fascinating to see like the the kind of just how polarizing it is too because there's just so many instances for me looking at it as like well yeah it it would make sense that we have these types of things and there's some sort of accountability for like the creation of them and how they change hands and like at the same time it's also like kind of looks like video games, right? Like this has been happening in video games in a lot of ways for years. Now it's just like making it more of a real, you know, a more, I don't know if it's just, you know, like, I don't want to get into that too far, but like, there's so many things that are like, yeah, it's, it's, it's kind of been coming, you know, like, but I just recently had a conversation with somebody about specifically about like, you know, NFTs and the way that that all will play out and I'm kind of curious how you feel about it because I've been a part of, you know, writing or covering stories for people for a really long time. And as that stuff evolves, you know, inevitably like my name will be removed, not intentionally most of the time, hopefully, but like if a, if a, a site changes the way they produce content or a link gets broken or any of those things that can kind of, you know, fall off the way the internet evolves now, you know, like Mm -hmm. there's definitely stories that I can no longer find that I know I wrote. And this hopefully in in some aspect could potentially solve some of those issues too, that it's not even a talking point related to kind of, you know, I guess like the metaverse, so to speak, but like just the accountability of it makes it really interesting. I don't know that we'll get to that either. And I don't want to speculate on it, but I do find it fascinating that it's just becoming a part of all these like subcultures like sneakers, you know?
1: Yeah. And first off, that's terrible that your name is being removed from things. That's, That's unfortunate. Um, And I hope that gets fixed. But in terms of, are you referring to like designers not being recognized in the metaverse or a problem with, you know, ownership?
0: Yeah. I mean, I think that, you know, there's a lot of, uh, there's just a lot of, you know, kind of stuff that people have created throughout the years, whether that's, you know, right now, obviously we're looking at designers, but like, I think just from a content creation standpoint, there's ways that this could benefit people that, We don't necessarily think that it will benefit people. Mm -hmm. And I'm just trying to be optimistic about it because like if Nike's investing in this and if Adidas is is investing in this, like to your point, it's not going away. It's only going to get bigger. People are going to be more involved in it. I'd rather be at least like educated and open to it and try to understand it as well as possible if I'm going to be a part of it because, you know. Even if I, even if I was to say years ago I don't want to be a part of social media, like eventually, like I feel like a lot of these things mm-hmm. just suck us in because everybody else that we know is doing it in some way. It's like okay, cool. Like I'm going to check this out, and next thing you know, to your point about sneakers, you find somebody that's passionate about it. Next, and now you're on this like crazy new journey because they're so excited about it. It's impossible to not be excited about it. Yeah,
1: so. and and I will just say the way that I for all the naysayers of NFTs and virtual sneakers and that whole realm and not understanding the value of a virtual good, let's say, Think, I'd like to think about it um, in terms of just re- think of a regular sneaker. S- someone might not understand how a very valuable Air Jordan, let's say, is very valuable or like a really old Nike shoe. They might not understand that. Um, but when you explain it to them, you'll use concepts like supply and demand and you know different designers who were involved in these things those same concepts exist in the metaverse you just have to expand your understanding of of what supply and demand means in a virtual world but the same they are there are mechanisms within technology to create that limited supply which creates that high demand so that's how i think about it and and it and it helps because it is very confusing to wrap your mind around someone paying for virtual goods and, and experiencing them in that way. But buying a rare shoe for thousands of dollars was a weird concept to many people at a point. Now it's just kind of taken for granted.
0: Yeah, that's a great point. Um, so I have one last question because our audience is very sneakerhead centric and probably spends lots of money on sneakers. From what I've read about you and your journey covering the footwear industry, you've been able to not really buy so many sneakers. So do you have any advice for all of these people that are listening as to like, just let that shoe pass and enjoy it from (laughs) afar?
1: Oh, my goodness. Um, Well, I will say I, I do believe in buying within reason what makes you happy. And if sneakers make you happy, then go ahead and buy them. I know my coworkers are very into shoes at Footwear News and they have a lot of shoes, I have one pair of Steve Madden gray slip ons that I rebuy every five months. So that's how I live my life. They match with everything and I like it. Um, but, you know, I, I think comfort, just from a footwear business industry perspective, comfort is, is obviously working for a lot of people. And I, all the shoes I have are comfort focused. My, the sneakers that I have right now are Hokas, um, and they're amazing for walking, running in the city. Um, but if it makes you happy buy it, but, you know, set your boundaries if it's, if it's causing issues for the bank account, <laughs>
0: <laughs> Yeah, this is definitely some sound advice. Well, uh, <laughs> thanks for, thanks for spending an hour with me and chatting about all this stuff. It's been awesome to talk with you. Uh, I want to make sure that everybody can find you. So I guess let them know where to find you on social media and how they can connect with you.
1: Sure. Yeah. You can follow me on Twitter, um, at Shoshana cement, S H O S H A N A. C-I-M-E-N-T, and I'm on Instagram as at Shoshisim, S-H-O-S-H-Y-C-I-M, and follow Footwear News. Um, We we put out great, great news daily.
0: Awesome. Thanks again for your time. Uh, Thanks, everybody, for listening. Make sure you give her a follow, and uh, obviously, we will catch you on the next episode. Thanks so much. Hey everyone, this is Nick again. Before you take off, I wanted to thank you for listening to the Sneaker History Podcast. We've revamped our Patreon with new tiers and even more access to exclusive podcasts and other benefits. You can join for as little as five bucks a month at patreon.com sneakerhistory. If you're not ready to jump in and support to keep the podcast independent in that way, consider joining our Discord community. We've got a bunch of fun things going on in the community, including trivia nights, giveaways, access to hundreds of sneaker raffles from around the world, release announcements, most importantly, just good people helping good people get the sneakers they want. We've also teamed up with a few partners to offer our supporters exclusive discounts. You can find some of those in the links for this episode, but even more in our Discord. Give us a try, and if you don't enjoy it, you can always just cancel the membership at any time. Last but not least, tell someone you like their kicks today. You never know how far a simple compliment can take you, and we all know how good it feels to have someone show their appreciation. Thank you all for the support, and we'll catch you on the next episode. Peace.